Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright from London. Hi, Octavia. How are you? (laughs) From London. You're both in London and from London. That's right, baby. Um, I'm good. I'm a big old spring cliche right now. I uh, followed your advice and have daffodils all over my house, uh, the cheap ones from the supermarket, and they are making me very happy. Um, the very few tulips that survived the squirrel massacre in my garden, as in the squirrels massacred the tulips. I didn't massacre the squirrels. I did not <laughs> massacre the squirrels. But they absolutely robbed me of my my spring joy. But I have to say the 10 out of 40 that survived <laughs> are coming up absolute roses. It's very exciting to me to see. How about you? How are you? I also have tulips coming up and it is so exciting. There's, I mean, like it still blows my mind that you can plant something and then it can like emerge out of the ground. Um, Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Magic. Like it's changing every single day, um, which is really exciting. And yeah, I'm uh, loving the daylight. That's how I'm feeling. Just loving the daylight. Yeah. But on to the show. Today, we are really excited to welcome the writer, critic, and scholar, Sara Ahmed, to the show. Sara's latest book, The Feminist Killjoy Handbook, shows how the label of killjoy has often been used to dismiss feminism by claiming that it causes unhappiness. But Sara shows that assuming the identity of the feminist killjoy is a path of liberation and change, a way to uncover a deeper history of feminism and fight for a more equal future. We've wanted to dedicate a show to feminism for a long time now, so today we'll also be talking more generally about the intersections of feminism and literature, discussing the feminist writers who have inspired us, and thinking through what books can do when it comes to the continued struggle for gender equality. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Sara Octavia? Sure, Carrie. Sara Ahmed is an independent feminist scholar. She worked as an academic for over 20 years before she resigned in protest at the failure of her university to deal with the problem of sexual harassment. She has published 10 books, including Living a Feminist Life, described by Bitch as not just an instant classic, but an essential read for intersectional feminists. Also, as a reminder, we are on Patreon. If you want to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. We've had some really fun topics lately, including our thoughts on boredom in what was hopefully not a boring episode. But if you're having trouble sleeping, you know, why not give it a go? (laughs) (laughs) Another exciting business announcement. As you probably know, Octavia's book is coming out this June and bookshop.org wanted to offer our listeners a special deal. So Octavia, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? I sure can. Um, It's a really wonderful thing. I am so happy to announce that my book, This Ragged Grace, has been selected as the bookshop.org book of the month for June, uh, which is wild. And it means that you, our wonderful listeners, can actually get free shipping and you can get 10% off if you order, pre-order, with the code RAGGED10. That's capital R, RAGGED10. All sales support independent bookshops and there is a link to pre-order and more details on that in the show notes. So check it out. In addition to that pre-order link on bookshop.org, you can also find a list of all the books we recommended today. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Sara Ahmed, a discussion of feminism and literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 
Sara Ahmed, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from the feminist Killjoy Handbook. Could you set it up for us, please? Yes, my Killjoy Handbook includes quite a few stories of being a Killjoy at different tables. The handbook starts with a family table, but this is a different table. This extract is about killing joy at a meeting table. I was hired as a lecturer in women's studies in 1994 to teach a core course on gender and race. The appointment was a result of recognition that feminism needed to take race seriously as a primary, not secondary category. Even if that recognition was right, some of us can end up embodying a category, becoming the race person, becoming race. I designed a new course, Gender, Race and Colonialism. The course had to be approved, forms filled in. At the final stage of the process, I was asked to attend the university committee. We are seated around a table. Most of the courses are approved without much discussion. My course comes up and a professor from another department begins to interrogate me. I was there, seated at the same table as he, a young woman, a person of colour, the only brown person in the room. No one else said anything. Perhaps a white man next to him nodded. I seemed to remember a murmur of agreement. Everything in what he said and how he said it expressed his anger, his distaste, his revulsion, that I could be there where he was, saying what I was saying, doing what I was doing. I can't remember everything he said, but the word in the course description that triggered his reaction was a relatively uneventful word, implicated. That I had used that word was a sign, he said, that I thought colonialism was a bad thing. He then gave me a lecture on how colonialism was a good thing, colonialism as modernity, that happy story of railways, language and law that is so familiar because we've heard it before. As I was listening to him, I heard how he saw not just me, but the course, my terms, the work, through the lens of whiteness, how I was seen as a sad brown relative, an ungrateful recipient of that gift of modernity. Perhaps I cannot bear it when the objects speak, when those pictured as willing recipients taking it in, all of it in, say no. He heard a no in the word implicated. I turned that implication into a theory, making no the implication of my work. When we say no, we show what we know. We might even turn no into philosophy. And I chose that uh, extract to share with you because it's not that I spoke back to him in that encounter, but rather I could hear how my own work was speaking back, refusing to tell that polished, happy story of colonialism that he then shared with me. I love that. I love that it's an example of how you show the feminist killjoy operating in the world throughout the book with these examples, but also this idea of no as a philosophy. Yeah. It, I think it contains a lot of what you're doing in the book there. Yeah. And I wanted to start 
by talking about this term feminist killjoy, because of course it's in the title, it's kind of the the jumping off point for the book. When and why did you start using it in your work? You know, it was quite a long time ago now that I first picked up the feminist killjoy and began putting that figure to work. I didn't originate that figure. That figure was already a stereotype about feminists that we are miserable and that our intent is to cause misery and we can challenge that stereotype but still find in that figure a potential, perhaps even a queer potential, a way of turning that negativity into a tool as if to say, well, if doing feminist work makes you unhappy, then that is what I'm willing to make. But I had actually come to the figure of the feminist culture a long time ago. I was writing a book on happiness My mum said when I told her that I was writing a book on happiness, oh, at last, Sarah, you're writing on something positive for a change. I'm like, I don't think so. (laughs) And I was writing on happiness partly because I'd just become so fascinated by the way in which diversity was operating. I had done this project talking to diversity practitioners in universities and they would talk to me about how diversity was a happy term. A shiny red apple, one practitioner described it as, And I began to realise how happiness was used to do things. And so I had a chapter in that book on the feminist killjoy. And originally that was how the killjoy was contained. She was a chapter in a bigger story about happiness. But it's not until the handbook that I've given the feminist killjoy a book of their own. I think think they're pleased about that. (laughs) (laughs) I was really struck when you um, set up your reading about, you know, you mentioned the fact that this is a book that has a few conversations that happen around tables And in this sort of thinking about happiness and expectations of happiness and then the killjoy, like the table feels like a very important element, doesn't it? Like in these moments when we assemble around a table, either to break bread or to have a kind of institutional decision made or something, if if somebody is a disruptor in those moments, it's rarely welcomed. But I wonder, like, were those table conversations in your mind when you came up with the structure of the book? Or did you find that it was just something that you kept coming back to as you were writing? Well, I'd already become rather obsessed with tables, it has to be said. I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote a book called Queer Phenomenology, which was, you know, a book which was at one level my most philosophical book. It was a close reading of phenomenological philosophers and I'm not a philosopher by training. I come from a combination of literature, critical theory and philosophy. So inadequate to all of these (laughs) by being all of these. (laughs) And um, I just, I was reading Husserl, you know, often described as a father of phenomenology. This is one moment where he talks about being at the table and then what's behind him are the children at the summer house. And as soon as I caught sight of Husserl's table, I just sort of became rather obsessed with them, which is a real indicator that I'm not a proper philosopher. And I began to, to follow tables around and to think about tables, not just as, um, you know, an, an actual thing that we might be seated at in order to have a conversation, at meet, a meeting, whether at home or at work, but also a table as a way of thinking about the very forms of social gathering, how we gather as an object that's between us an object that some of us might have a place at and others not. And so it wasn't surprising that a lot of my Kildra stories are stories around tables. And my and the handbook begins, as I said, with the family table. But I began to think about, well, to, one, to some extent, it's not just that you become a feminist Kildra often around the table, disrupting the conversation, but the table is also where thinking more um, creatively about the work that we do as feminist Kildra. So I 
in the chapter on feminist culture as, as a poet, for example, I talk about the kitchen table um, and the way in which the kitchen table became the name of a woman of colour publishing house. So the table where we gather, where we meet and perhaps break bread or sustain ourselves becomes also how we imagine sending our work out and communicating to each other. So there's something about the table that allows us to think quite creatively about what it means to do feminist work and to, to communicate our ideas. So the table, like the Killjoy, became a communication device. I'm not surprised to hear that you wrote a book about happiness because so much of this book is about happiness and it really made me rethink happiness and also how much we prioritize the idea of happiness in our society and how how easy that makes it to dismiss someone or something who threatens this idea, or as you say, a kind of fantasy. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that, because it seems happiness is so paired with this idea of the killjoy who kills the happiness. And how has how has your work made you reevaluate kind of our idea of happiness and what it is and happiness as a goal as well? Um, in so many ways, I would say. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by language and words themselves and what they do and where they go. And, you know, the, the etymology of happiness is itself interesting to me, that it comes from the Middle English word suggesting hap, meaning chance. And I was thinking about that, the history of the word happiness, alongside reading um, ways in which happiness is being conceptualized and thought, not only in philosophy, the history of ideas, but also in specific disciplines. So I was quite interested in positive psychology. A lot of that literature defined happiness as not what happens to you, but as something you, as a project, something that you work towards. So in other words, happiness was defined against the hap. And one of my research questions became really early on, you know, how does happiness lose its hap, becoming something that in a way, is, is an end that you're aiming for, that is a sign that you've lived a good or virtuous life. So the really interesting thing to me as well was, you know, as a feminist critic, was realising the extent to which feminist philosophers, feminist theorists, feminist sociologists had themselves critiqued happiness, had often shown how happiness can be used to sort of justify social norms as social goods. And Simone de Beauvoir says, in the second sex, it's always easy to describe as happy a situation in which one wishes to place others, which is such a perfect description of a, of a problem that I think many of us would recognise. And, you know, I'm, I'm also really interested in how, you know, how people make use of words and concepts in their everyday life. I think everyday life is where we're doing the work of theory. And I'm, I was very struck by something that my mum used to say to me quite a lot, so I keep evoking my mother. She would say things like, I just want you to be happy. Yeah. She would say that, I just want you to be happy, usually when she was slightly annoyed at me for doing something that she thought <laughs> would not be, you know, conducive to my happiness, but probably more to the point, conducive to her own. So this, this speech act is just so interesting to me because it appears to give another person, a child perhaps, but also just a friend or a colleague, the freedom to decide what would make them happy. And yet it's often said in such a way as to imply that the person who's making a choice is doing something that would take them away from their own happiness or the happiness of the person who is saying that. And, and working all that out and working that through became really interesting to me. It's so interesting. And I think, I mean, one of the things I really loved and responded to in this book is the way that you play with language. And as you say, like you're you're interested in in the deeper meanings of the words we use and how they become theory in, in our 
interpersonal kind of experiences. But I also was really struck by the way that at one point you share some thoughts about hope and about wonder and pleasure in relation to the feminist killjoy and in relation to this practice of happiness and the kind of complication of it. Um, But I was particularly struck by the way that you bring it back to the body. And in this passage, you, you bring it back to dancing in particular. And I wonder if you could talk about that, like why it's important to return to the body when thinking about feminism. And I think feminists have been so creative in how they thought about thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Partly because of the refusal to make thought disembodied. And in a way, one of the things that is really a kind of starting point for me is to think about while being a feminist killjoy can take a lot of time out of you, you know, you, you become the problem because you point to a problem. And becoming a problem can be exhausting. You know, you can feel diminished by the necessity of having to call something out. And you're calling it out partly because of what other people don't do. So that that effects of that are very bodily. And I, I call it the wear and the tear, you know, of doing the work. And, you know, one of the survival tips that I offer in the handball is know that there's only so much you can do. You know, you have to sort of know your bodily limits. And bodies often, you know, tell us. They say no, they protest when we try and do too much or they complain even when we ask too much from ourselves. So uh, I I think of um, the body as reminding us of the limits of our capacities, but also reminding us of our capacities. And although the story of the feminist killjoy sounds like a story of what gets taken from us, it can also be what we're given. It can be the insights that we have because of the difficulty we have getting through an institution, a door, the family or whatever. And as a result, you know, the body is also a reminder of possibility and hope and gives us a sense of potential. So a lot of the kind of knowledge and and, and wisdom even, I use the words hard-worn wisdom, a lot of that comes from just the, the experience of a body coming up against a world. But the emphasis on dance, for instance, is also about, you know, what it what it can feel like to make a connection with someone who gets it because they've been in that place and, and, and the way in which we can have, I call it also killjoy joy, when we sh- share a sense of purpose or struggle for a better world, we have that kind of killjoy joy, a, a joy that doesn't come out of turning away from what's difficult, but actually turning towards it. And speaking of shared troubles. One thing I loved about this book was how it always connected feminism back to the struggle against things like racism and and transphobia and kind of how to think of all of these things as, as interconnected, but also fractured. And one of the ways in which you discuss this is, is you talk about how feminist killjoys can't always listen as feminist killjoys. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that because I, it was really helpful for me to think about intersectionality in that way. Yeah, I, it, it was important to me. It's one of the um, the survival tips is listen to the feminist killjoy as if she is another person. And I think it's quite important because, you know, when you, when you start talking about feminist killjoys, I'm, I can feel myself getting energised and, and, and like, yeah, yeah, you know. There's a sense of um, political vitality that comes from claiming that figure. But it's not like a happy and warm story of solidarity. How could it be? I say it's not the more the merrier, it's the more the heavier. 
And the reason it's not the more the merrier is because actually the, the killjoy teaches us that antagonism or conflict or division, they can't simply be overcome. But one way they are overcome or presumed to have been overcome is by projecting negativity onto the outsider. So rather than presuming negativity comes from the outsider, the ethics of my argument really is to say that the killjoy is already here before we are, that they have priorities. I cite Avta Bra's contribution in her article, Journey to Nairobi, because she tells a story of what it's like to be a feminist of colour in one of those really early women's conferences and how she made this point that anti-racism should be a core feminist demand. But that point wasn't carried forward into the plenary session. She was blanked. And so what was really interesting to me was the way in which actually you're already there participating in the feminist conference, but you're blanked, you're not recorded as being there. So often the killjoy that you don't know about that prior history because of that blanking, because of the failure to actually put the point forward, it simply gets lost. So thinking about the killjoy as another person is is saying that actually, no, I'm not always the killjoy who is, you know, the one who is getting in the way of the happiness of others. I can position other people as killjoys, as getting in the way of my happiness. So the, the ethical task is always to listen to others who might have a claim on a space or make a claim about a space that is different to one's own. And that means you can't simply just say, oh, as a killjoy, I'm always right. As a killjoy, I've got some sort of justification for every point of view I have. It's actually much harder work that we all need to do on ourselves to think about who we are, what our claims to space are, and whether or not other people can enter the conversation because of how it's being dealt with. Yeah, you say in the book, solidarity is a bumpy ride, um, which I really loved and rang, rang very true. It made me think a lot about actually how the idea of solidarity, particularly within the feminist movement, is kind of the way it gets passed out into kind of popular culture, I guess, like feminist solidarity is often actually just a simplification or a flattening of something that actually hides the work that real solidarity requires, right? Like to have solidarity across differences is not easy. (laughs) And that's the work. But I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little more about how you think about solidarity in your work and in your practice. Yeah. I know it it is a word that I've I've, I've thought with (laughs) and around at some time. And it's a difficult word. I, I use the term or the expression killjoy solidarity quite a lot. So for me, solidarity that is harder, that is bumpier, the the kind of more painful work version of solidarity is also solidarity that is about recognising the things that make it very, very difficult for us to be in the world as as who we are or who we imagine ourselves to be, given the many histories that are behind us and that we bring with us into every room. So, yes, solidarity is hard work. And one of the arguments, well, I wouldn't even say it's an argument. There, There are two what I call killjoy um, commitments in the book. The first one, um, there's more than two, but the, the two of them, <laughs> two, two that I think are paired. And I, I haven't, I'm, I'm going to reflect more on this in the future, I'm sure. One is I am willing to be inconvenient. So I'm, I'm willing to get in the way of happiness. I'm willing to get in the way of the traffic to stop the flow of traffic in order to reveal something violent, say, that mostly passes by unnoticed. I'm, I'm going to get in the way. But the second one is I think it's possibly even harder, which is I'm willing to be inconvenienced. 
Mm. I'm willing to, and that that this is where solidarity becomes hard work. And it, you know, my own work on, on 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 working to challenge how sexual harassment becomes part of institutional cultures, where I really learnt this lesson. Kildra solidarity or solidarity in the face of what we come up against means that you're willing to listen to another person, or it can mean this, and amongst other things, you're willing to listen to another person about their experiences of what is hard and diminishing harassment say, even if what they say gets in the way of your work, even if what they say means you have to give up some of your own attachments to an institution, for example, or a project or programme. And that's where solidarity is really, really hard work. Sometimes to actually be in solidarity with somebody else, we actually have to stop what we're doing. We can't keep going the way that we were going. Hmm. I want to zoom out to the structure of the book. Um, you call it a handbook and you talk a little bit about that choice. And you've also mentioned, you know, you you have these killjoy truths and killjoy maxims and killjoy commitments and killjoy equations. And I love that they're all listed at the end of the book. It's really, it's really wonderful to have read the whole thing and then see them all there kind of reinforcing what you've written. But I wonder how you how you arrived at the idea of this handbook with these maxims and truths and kind of e- it, not easy takeaways, but but takeaways, like strong statements, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted the strong, bold statements in there, but they weren't in there, in there from the beginning. I knew I wanted to write a book that would be um, well, yeah, a trade book, a book for a wider audience. I, I'd always uh, been aware of the transformative power of feminist ideas because I've been in the classroom as a teacher and I've watched students, I don't know, interact with a text by somebody like Audre Lorde and be changed by it. It's a magical, transformative process. But, you know, I'm not at the university anymore myself. The classroom is not where I'm doing my work, at least not the classroom as it's traditionally understood. So partly the handbook is about finding a way to share my feminist ideas and commitments without thinking of the work as going into the classroom, although I hope it does go there amongst other places. So I I, I thought if I was going to write that book, I would do it with feminist killjoys because I've always sensed, you know, I mentioned this earlier, how much people get from that figure, how much they can recognise in her. So I knew I wanted to do a book that would be for a wider audience with feminist killjoys. And their book was a handbook, partly because I think of a handbook as a hand, you know, a helping hand or an outstretched hand or even a handle, how you hold on to something. But I, I was sort of struggling to work out what would make it distinct, you know, from other work that I've done with the feminist killjoys. I was actually walking my dogs one time. <laughs> and I was like, because I've had these very sentences that were already sort of, I already had sort of shared in living feminist life in particular, which are quite crisp, like to expose a problem is to pose a problem. So I'm like, I don't just want to put those sentences in the new handbook and there they are. Hooray. You know, I'm saying the same thing again. Of course, we know we have to repeat ourselves, but I wanted them to do something else. So it was as I was walking my dogs, I was thinking, oh, I know. I often use the expression killjoy truth anyway. I shall turn these sentences, some of which began in earlier books, into something much bolder and give them a kind of status in the text. I didn't want them to become um, structuring. Like I didn't structure it around these truths and commitments. They come up when they turn up, you know, in, in the in middle of me of my descriptions. But they but they gave a way of really like um, turning their sentences into something much bolder. 
Right, which then really comes back. At the end, you have a reading list and you have finally a series of discussion questions for uh, feminist killjoy reading groups, which I really enjoy because it just, there's something incredibly plural about this book, right? It's so much about community and about your work and how it's in relation to the work of other feminist writers. And you also talk about your students, you know, your conversations with students over your years as, as a teacher as well. And yeah, I that really does feel like a handle, those uh, those questions for, for the reading groups. Did you always know you wanted to have that section as well? Uh, no, that came actually quite late. I was just thinking about it. And I, I did uh, uh, engage with this idea of the feminist uh, Kiljo reading group. I mentioned Ranjini Shah's work in Sydney. Um, they had set up a feminist Kiljo reading group. And I actually quote from Raji's blog about that. And I was just, you know, thinking at the end, thinking about like, what would be, you know, this is interesting, somebody who's written on use and the uses of use, what would be really useful <laughs> for me to do? And I wanted to, to have discussion questions, but I wanted them to be addressed to groups, not to an individual, even though I sometimes imagine a handbook being read by somebody on their own, not in a classroom, but on their own. I sort of think of the kind of direction of the handbook as being about a group, like finding connection, making connections. The last chapter is about the feminist killjoy as activist. Um, and I I really like that that's where you ended up in this book. And I, I, I wanted to ask you if you think of your writing as a form of activism. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think, I think, feminism itself sort of makes it harder to demarcate activism as some sort of separate sphere of activity. So it can be activism when you say no to somebody who's told you what to do with your life. That, that can be feminist activism. It can be feminist activism when you challenge the distribution of domestic labour. It can be feminist activism when you raise questions about harassment and bullying in the organisation where you work. It, it can be feminist activism when you go out onto the streets and protest and demonstrate along with others and experience the the mad the, the kind of feminist magic that comes from assembling as feminists saying no to something. So I think one of the things I've always learned from feminism is the need not to bracket out the, the kind of the moment of demonstrating or protesting as the true moment of activism and just to think about our stories of getting there. How do we get to a point really where we can begin to identify violence, say no to it, but also combine our forces with others. So I, I do, this is a long way of answering your question, I do think of the writing that I'm doing as a kind of activism, because it's partly because it's so much about trying to show what often doesn't get seen, the violences that don't get seen, that we're encouraged not to see, because actually seeing them and identifying them, their institutional nature, is often compromising of our capacity to move forward in our careers. So for me, anyone who's involved in the project of bringing that violence out so it can be identified in order to be challenged is doing is doing activist work. And the Feminist Killjoy's philosopher chapter and the Feminist Killjoy's activism chapter share a lot of the same material. If anyone um, who's looking closely will notice this. And they're kind of like two parts of the same process. So I start the, the, fact, the philosophy chapter with Angela Davis talking about why it's important that Angela Davis is a philosopher. And that's not just because she was trained as a philosopher. It's also because she teaches us how to do philosophy. She teaches us that one way of doing philosophy is to try and change the world. 
So our very effort to change the world generates knowledge. And so for me, knowledge and activism are part of the same process and the same project. And writing, writing for me is fundamentally part of how we know something, come to understand something and communicate that knowledge to others. So it cannot but be part of an activist commitment. Of course, it's not the only thing you do, but it becomes part of what you do in the process of trying to bring an end to the institutions that promote and enable and naturalize violence. Sarah Ahmed, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. So the theme of our show today, inspired by feminist Killjoy Handbook, is feminism. And as usual with big themes like this, we will only be scratching the surface, but we really wanted to get into some of the books and authors that have inspired our own feminism and also how writing and text relate to the action and activism of feminism. So I wanted to start with a more personal question, as usual. Octavia, how have books contributed to your understanding of feminism? Profoundly, although it didn't start there. So the first time I remember having a really strong sense of gender-based injustice was actually in 1995 when I would have been about nine years old. And I remember so clearly I was watching the news or maybe it was a documentary, but something with my parents late at night. And there was an item about rape being used as a weapon of war during the Bosnian conflict, which was coming to a kind of close at the time. And my parents were always incredibly direct with me when I was curious about something um, when I was a child. So we talked about it. And I remember it shaped so much what I then paid attention to going forward. And I started to notice that women were often worse off than men in whatever situation you could possibly choose to think of. And then I remember still in primary school being incredibly shocked when I learned about the rates of women dying in childbirth in places where contraception wasn't readily available. And I started to get curious about contraception. And then I went down that wormhole of being like, wait, what? Some women have to have babies even if they don't want them? So I probably didn't read any kind of overtly feminist books until I was in my early teens, a little bit older. And then I started to seek them out for myself. And the first one I picked up was Jermaine Greer's The Female Eunuch, which, you know, there are many reasons to feel complicatedly about that book now. But then it was this incredibly powerful place to start getting information that basically backed up how I'd been feeling about the world for a long time by then. Um, especially entering into puberty and realizing men were responding differently to me as I moved through the world and my body was changing and all of that. So it was, it was a fire, that book, it really was a fire in my spirit. Um, And then after that, as a teenager, an older teenager, I read a lot of Simone de Beauvoir. And then when I got to university, I worked with loads of feminists and queer theorists like Judith Butler and Donna Haraway. I saw Jack Halberstam speak and that opened me to their kind of perspective And then later came into the French theorists like Hélène Sixou, who founded the first center for women's studies in Europe and wrote about feminine writing, écriture, that's a really hard word to say in French. (laughs) 
Escriture féminine, excuse me, and loose ah, irrigate. Beautiful, wonderful. No, it was not beautiful <laughs> and not on my game today, but thank you for your support. Um, but yeah, it was it was a very white reading list, you know, and it was only really to my shame at right at the end of my undergraduate degree that I came to understand intersectionality properly and feminism as being plural. You know, we really ought to talk about feminisms rather than feminism. Um and then found writers like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde and and my understanding of what feminism, what feminisms could offer and also the holes in my understanding of feminism um, went to a whole different level, you know, when I started really pursuing reading feminists of color as well. What about you? Well, I admit that my journey to feminism has been a slower one than yours. I really just wasn't or or thought that I wasn't interested in it in high school and even college as a as a literature student and i naively thought it wasn't something for me for a long time because of perceptions that i had about what feminism was you know in the 90s and the 2000s and this belief that i had that basically a lot of the fights of the 70s had been won and this was not coming from my mom by the way she was very much an ardent feminist and continued to be but I thought things were like pretty good for me. You know, I I just, I, I was wrapped up in my own life and not very thoughtful, but I think I, I'd also bought into some of the myths about what, what feminism was and who it was for and how it operated. And, you know, because I do remember being alarmed like you were by things like the easy dismissal of sexual assault at college, you know, but I just didn't, I didn't connect them to feminism, I guess. So that meant, you know, when I was studying and when I was choosing which classes to to take and which texts to read, I really missed a lot of those seminal texts like that you were talking about, like Simone de Beauvoir, you know, Andrea Dworkin, Judith Butler, Audre Lorde, all of those things. I remember reading in high school A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf and being very moved, but again, saw that kind of as a historical argument rather than one that was still alive to my shame. And then, you know, I had a slow awakening kind of outside of education when I entered the world a little bit more in the world of work and my eyes were more open to gender inequality and, you know, how my life was different from other people's. So I guess that that was when I started to engage more with feminist ideas and feminist texts. And it was pretty concurrent that I also saw, you know, how blinkered and ableist and white my view was, but also how, you know, a lot of those seminal feminist texts left out a lot of voices. And so in some ways, my feminism has been most informed by writers who were expanding the idea of feminism in that way, um, like Audre Lorde, like Renietta Lodge, more recently, like Sean Fay, who we had on the show, and who taught me just how plural, as you say, feminism can be and just how many different ways it can be seen and how much, you know, historically it has missed. But we've talked before about the relationship between texts and action and writing for change and how words and actions are not always the same. So I wonder in the context of feminism, kind of from that question, okay, your feminism has been so shaped by texts. How do you see the relationship between those texts and activism, for instance, in feminism? Well, I think 
if I go back to those first experiences of reading feminist texts, that you know, they were really intensely powerful because they were very internal. You know, they they were books that gave me the words for the feelings I'd had inside me for years. And when I tried to speak about those feelings with my friends, I guess I was, they were positioning me as a feminist killjoy and they didn't want to have those conversations. I just didn't have the language for that at the time, right? If I'd had the feminist killjoy handbook when I was 16, I think my life would have felt very different, you know, but <laughs> I didn't. And it was these other books that were giving me this language through which I could better express these feelings that I that I'd been having and I didn't quite know how to express in a way that wasn't dismissed by people around me, you know? The books made me feel like I wasn't going mad for seeing the world the way I did or for thinking the way I did. They showed me that there was this whole community of other women who thought that way too. And like my mom and my aunt, especially my aunt, who is a very feminist thinker, were, were women in my life who were kind of showing me different ways to think. But but there was something that had to happen internally, I think. And it was these writers that really started showing me the way. And so that's the first bit. But then I think the second stage is for you, the reader, to kind of harness that feeling of being seen and understood by these books and these writers and let it inform how you then go and act in the world. So maybe you're not able to make very explicit activism the center of your life, but I mean, it's a bit like what Sarah was saying earlier. There is a form of activism that just happens around the dining table. Like, are you willing to have the hard conversations when they come up? Are you willing and able to be a feminist killjoy, right? Like reading the texts will help you hone your feelings of injustice with facts and arguments and maybe show you new ways of thinking about feminism and what it can achieve and what it's necessary for. And you can then carry those things out into the world where you then can demand, for example, fair treatment for yourself and others at work or into difficult conversations with your sexist, racist or transphobic family members or colleagues or, you know, for white women in particular, reading feminist writers of color will only ever help expand their understanding of feminism. The same can be said for cis women reading trans feminist writers. Like, it, the text is the beginning maybe, and then the way of living is the continuation. And that's where the activism really can take take root. Yeah, I think you're right that you need to see the act of reading as the first step, really. And that text, I mean, it's an essential first step because words have this, and, and books in particular, have this really unique ability to give us a lens for how to see the world, whether it's changing our way of seeing it, Um, as it certainly has for mine, or reinforcing our feelings by showing us that we're not alone. You know, Sarah was talking about the the community um, and finding joy in sort of finding other feminist killjoys or giving linguistic shape to injustices that we've noticed. You know, it's, there's nothing better than when a book defines something that you've noticed, but haven't quite been able to put together in words. And I think that's something that books can do, but yes, you're right. There are plenty of people who read feminist texts, who identify with them, who identify injustice and and don't go on to enact any of their truths or, or, you know, I think it's okay to not be able to do it all the time, but I think there is a gap between reading and doing. Sara had this great anecdote about a professor who was bullying another colleague and this this colleague was a person of color. And this professor who was doing the bullying literally had a sign on their door that said feminist killjoy. And um, so it's like there is, it's not enough to claim the label. It's not enough to read the book. And, you know, we can't be perfect all the time. We are all bad feminists, as, as Roxane Gay says. But I think we all need to think about how you, how you use the truths that you learn in books to, 
to kind of change the way you operate in the world. Yeah, definitely. So how about fiction and particularly novels when it comes to feminism? What what do you think novels can offer to, to feminism? I think what fiction does so well is it can make abstract theoretical ideas about like, for example, inequality, right? Or sexism into something concrete. And that makes it more real to people. That makes it easier for people to grasp and maybe relate to themselves in some way. And then the idea will stick and grow. And it's a way of people learning things without feeling lectured to, which is a pretty surefire way to shut people down, I think. Right. Mm. Um, I mean, this is, I'm going to give a pretty crude example because I'm really simplifying for the purposes of answering your question, but you know, you can explain to someone how intersectionality works, right? And you can give a lecture on it. But if you can get people actually reading novels that that show how the lived experience of, for example, women of color or trans women are shaped by structural inequalities in a much more drastic way than that of white cis women, then you might find the ideas land in a more tangible way. And like I'm thinking of Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, which does such a brilliant job of placing the trans woman and the divorced cis woman as compatriots, right? In this really smart way that means no matter what prejudice you might come to that book with, you will read the story and you will you will have a deepening sense of a feminist consciousness, regardless of whether you want it or not, I think. And that's what I think novels can do so brilliantly. Someone who wouldn't necessarily seek out a feminist manifesto might well pick up a feminist novel and find themselves being awakened to feminist consciousness that way. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a really great answer. And I don't think that we should ever see novels, as we've discussed many times, as, as like a teaching tool. That's not what they are. Um, and we shouldn't see novels as a moral project either. But you're right that they have a way of offering a portrait of lived experiences that uh, other mediums don't. And, you know, talking, you saying, okay, I think a lot of people probably were awakened in some ways by novels. I mean, those were the texts that I encountered that I think were the beginning of this journey um, in, in high school in particular. So like I read The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which is all about a woman going mad because she's trapped in a nursery after giving birth on bed rest. Mm. And you start to think her particular situation as a woman is what has made her be literally imprisoned in her own home. So yeah, I think even novels that as explicitly feminist as what I mentioned, like Beloved by Toni Morrison, or you know, even something like Anna Karenina, like it forces you to think about the situations that women are in, in society, and why. Why? Yeah, totally. So I'm thinking about Sara's phrase, feminists need feminisms to survive, which I loved. And I wonder what kind of work would you like to see from feminist scholars and writers more generally? You know, I really don't feel like I have the authority to answer this question because I feel like I'm not up to speed really in what feminist scholars and, and writers are doing right now. But I think all I can say is that I sort of try to live by the maxim that if I am the most radical thinker I know, then I'm really not doing it right. <laughs> so <laughs> I, like I keep that. turning yeah. to writers to seek out much more radical and much more inclusive ways of thinking about feminism and feminisms. You know, I think it can be really difficult to hold the complicated and frankly, extremely troubling history of feminism alongside its future, right? And I think it's something I struggle with and I really want to read more writing I guess that like looks radically forward 
while also holding in mind the difficult past of what came before, because you can't separate them. You know, right now, I think I'm particularly drawn to feminist writing that that takes in climate crisis, that takes in the natural world in a, in a non-romanticizing way. So I recommended on the show quite recently Donna Haraway's book, Staying with the Trouble, which I think is a brilliant example of how to use feminist thinking to think through climate and to think through lessening the sense of hierarchy between humans and, and other creatures, which is important. What about you? What are you, what are you looking for? <laughs> well, if you don't have the authority, then I definitely don't have the authority, <laughs> but we do also host a podcast, which is all about <laughs> speaking with authority on things you don't know about. So, um, I guess I, I have been very disappointed by how much air gets taken up by the quote unquote gender critical feminists oh and my God, the yeah. whole quote unquote trans debate. And I really hope that is not going to remain the state we're in for much longer, but I am really trying to engage with the multiplicity of trans voices in the feminist space. Um, and so I would just see, love to see more of that. Although I know there's a lot of wonderful trans feminist writers already. Yeah, definitely. So quickly, what is your recommendation on our theme today? Feminism. Well, it's actually an, an example that kind of does what I was saying, which is the Penguin Book of Feminist Writing, edited by Hannah Dawson. And it's an incredible collection of feminist writing from all around the world. It's arranged chronologically, and it starts in 1405, and it ends in 2020. And it really does an amazing job of tracing the evolution of a movement through its troubling prejudices, through its complex early waves of thought, all the way to kind of where it is now. And what I love about it is it has some of the manifestos in it, but it also has poems. It also has extracts from novels and from memoirs as well. So it kind of really looks at how feminist thought has evolved through lots of different kinds of writing. And it really takes as its premise the idea that feminism is the insight that sexism exists and the struggle against that oppression. And it opens with a really fantastic essay by Hannah, um, and who's a historian of ideas at King's College London and a phenomenal writer. So yeah, I think it's a great place to, to go. Mine is Your Silence Will Not Protect You, which is a collection of essays and poems by Audre Lorde, published by Silver Press in, in 2017. And she has already come up in our discussion with Sara, and it actually has an introduction by Sara Ahmed. And I think this is just a wonderful introduction to Lorde as a thinker, but also as a poet. Uh, she has such a mastery of language and a clarity of thought, and she's an essential voice in the in the intersectional feminist struggle, and it, she just has taught me so much. So I would recommend going to that if you are interested in Lorde's work. Okay, we're back here with Sara Ahmed to give our book recommendations. Octavia, would you like to start with yours? I'd love to. So this novel is called One Small Voice by Santanu Bhattacharya. And I've had to read it for work. But the minute I got about five pages in, I was reading it for pleasure instead, you know, when like, you cross that line. It's such a great novel. It's just a really fantastic story told really well in that way that when a novelist absolutely just holds your attention 
And it's, it's a delight to read that kind of a story, even though it's not a particularly delightful story. It's a very painful story in lots of ways, but it's so well-crafted. It's about friendship. It's about identity. It's also about the long-lasting effects of trauma. And I guess in a kind of nutshell, it's a story about life in middle-class turn of the century India. It starts in Lucknow in Northern India in 1992. And the protagonist at the time is 10 years old. He's called Shabanka Trivedi, and he witnesses a really horrifying act of mob violence um, when he's at a wedding and none of the other adults around him know that it's happening. So he he sees this thing, just him. And it, it happens during a period of riots and terrible unrest in between the Hindu and Muslim populations, really stoked by populist politicians at the time. And the story unravels as Shabanka grows older, he begins calling himself shabby. He tries to draw a line under his upbringing in Northern India. He moves to Mumbai. He wants to experience a different kind of life. But following him always is this experience of trauma that he went through. And it's so beautifully and carefully balanced the way that Bhattacharya brings this haunting back to Shabby as he as he tries to move beyond it. And there are these amazing scenes when he gets to Mumbai, he's in his early 20s. He moves in with a guy called Syed and eventually this woman called Shruti joins them and they become this trio of best friends. And there's this, I think my favorite element of the book was the strand of the plot that's all about these three young adults kind of finding each other and and creating this chosen family. Um, But also then it shifts and changes and they have to move into a different dynamic as they grow out of that very tender kind of intimate phase of life when you're in your early 20s and your boundaries can be completely merged with others and then you grow a bit older and that shifts again. So it's a novel that really gives you a, a, a sense of a long life and a sense of the trials and tribulations of a long life, but also the potential for pleasure, the potential for connection. And underneath all of that is actually this very, very sharp description of a very complicated political situation in India that I think doesn't get as much attention in sort of the white British press as it should do. So it's been an education as well as a kind of marvelous story to read. And I, yeah, I recommend it very highly. Sara, could we get your recommendation, please? Yeah. So one of the joys of writing the Feminist Killjoy handbook was going back and rereading some of the texts that had mattered a lot to me earlier on. And I reread uh, Amata Aidu's Our Sister Killjoy, and that's my recommendation. You should read that, definitely. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was published, you know, in 1977. And I uh, I consider it the first kind of text that gave a Killjoy a voice. So Sissy, she's our narrator. She's our sister Killjoy. And we follow her as she travels from Ghana to Germany to England. And the novel is in many ways a catalogue of Killjoy encounters. One time Sissy is in a market in Frankfurt and she sees all this polished glass, this, this shiny glass, and she's addressed suddenly as a black girl and she looks around, wonders who they're talking about, and then she realises they're talking about her. And that's when she looks around and she notices whiteness. And it's all about what it means to be travelling as a killjoy, noticing whiteness. And it's a really, really powerful text. And I was rereading it and remembering its power and its significance. And I was also reading about how it impacted other people's work. So I did read Michelle Cliff's If I Could Write This in Fire, a black literary critic, and I was really struck by how she was influenced by our sister Killjoy, which she said helped to, to, to turn her rage against colonialism into something creative. That sounds great. And I loved reading about that in the book. So it's really nice to hear you fully recommend it. Thank you very much. 
So my recommendation this month is the novel Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson, published in 1985. And Jeanette Winterson feels like one of those authors who's sort of on the scene a lot. People talk about her all the time. She's such a titan in the British literary world, but I'd never actually read any of her books. But I was in a used bookstore the other day and I found the original Pandora Press edition of this, which has a wonderful illustration on the cover. And I decided I had to read this. So this was uh, Winterson's debut novel. I really loved it. It is semi-autobiographical account of a young girl named Jeanette growing up in the north of England with two evangelical Pentecostal parents who believe that it is her destiny to be a missionary. But then her life is thrown off course when she falls in love with another girl. And I didn't realize how deeply funny this novel would be, I guess. She has this really wonderful eye for the absurd details of life and the absurd characters of life without it ever being like snarky or mean-spirited. Um, it's it's a very open novel in some ways. I loved her description. She works to earn money with an undertaker. And this undertaker is also a wreath maker. And um, I love that she she's really tired of always having to do crosses, um, which she thinks are really <laughs> unimaginative. And she complains about it all the time. Or um, Jeanette is so confused. Uh, she, she finally has to go to school after being homeschooled for a long time. And her classmates don't appreciate her needlepoint project that's just all black and white that just says the summer has ended and we are not yet saved. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. It's so great. Um, and it's it's full of little things like that, um, but it's it's very emotional too. And I get the sense that with her upbringing, and she's very cut off from a lot of the culture of the outside world, but deeply engaged with the text of the Bible. And it gives her such a unique grasp of language and a way of seeing the world. And I don't know, it, it just feels very unique. I can see why it was such a sensation when she first published it. So yeah, if you haven't read it, I'd really recommend it. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Sara Ahmed and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. It helps us reach new listeners. And to those of you who've done it recently, thank you. We love you. Oh, it feels so good to read your reviews. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plout with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>